0: the uh, auditing work that i've done over most of those years i recognized probably back in about 1991 that there was a 50 to a 100 year plan and in operation and i would just see this problem happening over and over and over and over again until I realized, okay, they have created a new business model, a profitable new business model where foreclosure has become a new profit center. This is a problem designed not to be solved. I became that changed to, if you do not make the monthly payment on the day it is due, you are in default. That was when I had an epiphany uh, that if it were not for the state-by-state foreclosure laws that restrain foreclosures technically virtually everyone in the country would be in a state of default and they could be foreclosed upon.
1: Carbon 60, or C60, first gained notoriety back in 2012 from a study that increased the lifespan of rats by a whopping 90%. Since that breakthrough study, scientists have conducted thousands of studies showing C60 not only has a very real potential extending lifespan, but it also has been shown to be better than any other substance ever studied to reduce inflammation, eliminate free radicals, provide powerful antioxidants, and more. After the famous rat study, scientists at Live Longer Labs realized a human, not industrial formula needed to be made. That's when they set out to be the first lab in the world to focus on what is best for human consumption of C60. This led Live Longer Labs to pioneer a high-quality 99.9% pure C60 refined without solvents in oils that work best for humans, and that is black seed oil. Look it up yourself. Black seed oil has been known as a universal healer for millennia and more modern studies confirmed its benefits as a potent antioxidant and for anti-inflammation. Simply, it's not like other oils, it's better. To try this amazing product, go to sarahwestall.com under shop. Remember, members of Ebeneer save 10% and all listeners can save 5% using the coupon found at sarahwestall.com under shop. Welcome to Business Game Changers. I'm Sarah Westall. I have Marie McDonald coming to the program. She is an amazing expert at real estate. And I really, really wish I would have known her when I was going through all my issues. And we're going to talk about that a little bit. But before I get into that, I want to talk to you about the amazing victories that we've had regarding the WHO amendments, the World Health Organization. Apparently, I've been uh, texting James Roguski all day yesterday, and he's just trying to get absolute final vetting on what's really going on. But they've been watching really closely what's been going on with the WHO international meeting in Switzerland. And, And what's happened is that 12 of the 13 amendments apparently have been removed from consideration. Let's read what James says. He says the massive response from people all over the world in opposition to the amendments to the international health regulations, along with legal actions in the UK. So thank God people around the world, especially in the UK, are taking legal actions. And then he says, and a whole lot of prayer seems to have resulted in 12 of the 13 amendments to the international health regulations being removed from consideration. And, you know, we wonder why that really is the 13th Amendment that they're still trying to put in place is to reduce the time frame to six months for regulations to go into effect. And it says, and amendments to these regulations shall enter into force six months after the day of notification referred to in paragraph one BIS of this article. So basically, they are trying to reduce it to six months. We've talked about this before on my show. It goes going from 18 to six months. That's what this 13th amendment is that's basically to whenever they want to make a change countries have very little time unless they purposely make an effort to to abstain from it they only have 6 months and that's a problem so we still have to fight really hard for that i wouldn't be surprised that they come back to the table really soon and try to do the same thing obviously this is what they're trying to put into the treaty the international treaty that they're trying to put together to go into effect November 2024. Uh, this is really good news, but we got to keep fighting because we got to make sure this is really what happens. They were trying to slide this in without anybody noticing, so unless somebody noticed, we would have been really hoes. They quietly had to give notification, they were just trying to do this without anybody even knowing. So we got to keep on track of this and be paying attention. But this is really good news for now. And I'll keep reporting on what I learn. I'm going to be talking to them constantly throughout the week. I'll make sure I know what's really going on. But this is just great news for now. Anyways, back to Marie McDonald. You are going to love her. This is going to be a detailed conversation about the real estate industry. We are going to talk about BlackRock, build, you know, buying up whole neighborhoods. But as she says, they're not. It's not a huge part of that industry. The industry is so massive, the amount of money, but she does notice patterns. That's what she does. She goes and analyzing, mathematically analyzing the patterns in the industry, and she's noticing a deliberate plan that they've been implementing, and she believes they're also using this for massive money laundering. So it's... It's a big deal, and I hope you get through this and you pay attention. This might be one of those shows that you listen to a few times, but it's important that everybody understands this is really going on behind the scenes. I personally had experience with this in my commercial deal, and I talk about it a little bit in the show, but this is, has a personal meaning to me that she does this. I really wish I would have known her back in the day. It would have been maybe a different situation. I don't know, but... You know, she has so much knowledge because she's seen so much of this, and people are being taken advantage of, and they've changed the laws. Thank God for state laws. That's why putting things down at the state level or as close as possible to the people who are actually affected by things. We can solve some of these problems, but at the federal government level, they're just trying to take over everything, and big money grab, big land grab, big power grab, it's really scary how out of control the federal government really is. Not that the state governments aren't corrupt, but we have a lot better chance at the state level than we do at the federal level. You mix in all the infiltrated organizations and the blackmailing and the money involved and we we have a lot to clean up here. So anyways, before I get into this, I want to remind you to go to my website, Sarahwestall.com, sign up for my newsletter. Stop the program right now and go sign up for my new le- newsletter at com. You'll get so much more information there. Also, I have quite a bit more people signing up for Ebeneer. If you can't afford it, let me know. I'll get you a free subscription. Otherwise, uh, it's, you know, I start at $5 a month. But there's, I got a lot of free books and resources. And then, of course, my exclusives. I got to do more exclusives. I keep saying I'm going to do more. It's so hard because I want this public out to, you know, this information out to the public. And I give you most of the information for free, but every so often I can do, or I hope more often, I can do more interesting things that people are interested in, in my exclusives. And But the important public information that people absolutely need to know, I, I try to get out there that it needs to be spread far and wide. And then when people want more information about something, a lot of times that's my exclusives or very interesting things are my exclusives. So that's what I'm trying to do. But anyways, you can go to sarahwestall.com. You can sign up for sarahwestall.tv if you want to see it on Apple and Roku and on your computer on sarahwestall.tv or on your television. It's really convenient that way and my exclusives. Otherwise, uh, Ebonier which you get everything there. So I appreciate everybody who supports this program, especially with... The censorship. I'm noticing that our video is on BitChute, or the numbers are going down, and I think that's because they're blocking whole countries now, which is really sad. Um, my numbers are going up on Rumble and some other places because I'm all over the place. But where I'm really seeing the growth is in audio podcasting. So if anybody it, enjoys listening to it in audio, I am growing quite a bit on that area too. So thank you, everybody, for sharing my work. Please keep doing that. It's really important. For me and for everybody with this information that I get out there. And let's get into this two-parter. It's pretty long with Marie McDonald. Hi, Marie. Welcome to the program.
0: Oh, hi, Sarah. It's wonderful to meet you. I have been looking forward to the interview. And thank you for bringing me on so, so soon as well,
1: um, you know, to yeah, talk about what I'm doing. Well, I wanted to bring you on because you obviously with the real estate market, we have BlackRock and others investment company, big investment companies, um, BlackRock has been in the news the most, buying out whole neighborhoods. I know people, friends of mine who have been trying to buy a house for over two years. And every time they go, there's ho- homes that have bids on them that are way above the, the value of the home. And they're like, this isn't even our dream house. And so they're like, it doesn't make sense. It's going to take us 20 years to get this value back. So what's really going on in this market? It seems like they're taking away people's ability to buy homes. Is it because they're looking for places to put their money for assets? And it's not as nefarious as we think, or is it a combination or what's going on?
0: Well, that is a great question. And What I have learned over the past 34 years of uh, uh, helping consumers to um, uh, buy, sell, finance, um, real estate, uh, and then uh, through the uh, auditing work that I've done over most of those years, I recognized probably back in about 1991, that there was a 50 to a 100 year plan and in operation. And the first clue that I had to this was that as I began auditing people's mortgage loans, uh, many of those loans were originated back in the 1980s. just after uh, Congress enacted uh, the deregulation legislation in 1980, and then in 1982, enacted the Garn-St. Germain Act that totally created a paradigm shift in um, residential home mortgage lending. And um, first of all, they created a new breed of federal housing creditors. So now you didn't have to be a bank with a depository base to uh, make a mortgage loan, you could create a mortgage subsidiary and then go out and lend anywhere in the country. And so many um, individuals began to form mortgage companies became mortgage brokers, and there was this just whole paradigm shift. Uh, At the same time, we have a lot of speculation in the market. The introduction here again. under the Alternative Transaction Parity Act as part of the Garn St. Germain Act in 1982, which created all kinds of creative mortgage products. And um, so this this created um, a lot of speculation in the marketplace, uh, led to the savings and loan crisis of the 1980s uh, and then to here again, in the early 1990s, uh, a lot of attorneys general were in class action lawsuits against these lenders and attempting to re-regulate a little bit. Um, but uh, by, by around 1991, 92, uh, I uh, sort of transferred uh, into real estate counseling into strictly auditing residential and commercial mortgage loans And I began finding situations where we could prove that the borrower made every single payment on time and yet found themselves facing foreclosure. And I would be able to get to the root of the problem. I could see what was happening Uh, because what I do actually is I follow the money. Uh, I, uh, I analyze the mortgage loan transaction mathematically. And um, so I'm able to see exactly on which date and which transaction uh, led to a manufactured default. And usually, so,
1: what, go ahead. Can, can I ask you a question about that? So you started seeing people who were being defaulted on who were never late, oh, well, maybe late once, or two, but weren't late, paid their bills, everything was good. And then they de- they uh, foreclosed on them anyways. Can you, are you about to tell, about to tell us why that is? Uh, yeah, I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's incredible. Can you imagine no. how frustrating that would be? That would be beyond frustrating. Okay. Go ahead. Yeah,
0: exactly. And um, so what would generally happen is that the lender or mortgage servicer uh, would manipulate the escrow account in some way, or let's even say that the homeowner was paying their own real estate taxes and homeowners insurance on their own. All of a sudden, we would see the servicer would force place insurance they would force open an escrow account and then the technology is programmed when the next monthly bill is generated to ask for uh, a higher amount of money to cover um, the escrow account. The borrower of course was not aware that any of this was happening and if they have automatic payments uh, that are being debited from their bank account, or uh, they're out of town and they just make their regular mortgage payment because they don't see that uh, the monthly payment has increased, they'll just pay the regular payment. Sure. And what will happen is the servicer will take the entire payment and put it in what's called a suspense account, or an unapplied funds account. And it will sit there for 30 days until the next monthly payment is made, at which point one mortgage payment will be deducted from the suspense account because now it has enough money to pay that escrow item as well. And the borrower remains 30 days late for the second month in a row.
1: Mm. Um,
0: When they attempt to dispute what's going on, hey, you know, I've paid my homeowner's
1: insurance. And at this point, they're not even told. They're they'd have no idea this is going on. They get they get the second bill. Are they told that they're behind? Well, back in
0: those days, many mortgage companies um, would issue coupon books, right? Oh,
1: and they'd never tell it you. They had,
0: you know, a regular yeah. monthly payment, right? And so that would not include any changes to the escrow account. So the lender would have had to send some sort of correspondence. Uh, These days, uh, under the Real Estate Settlement Procedures Act and the Truth in Lending Act, these mortgage servicing companies have to send out a standardized monthly mortgage billing statement that really gives the borrower a pretty clear picture of what's going on in all account categories.
1: But back to Is that for real? Is that for both commercial and residential? Because well, with my a, commercial, when I talked to the, um, oh, what was, I can't remember all the agencies I talked to back in my day, and well, the, the FDIC and whoever else that I was trying to talk to, they told me that the bank did not have to give me a monthly statement ever. And I swear to God, I had that. In writing, I couldn't believe I had that.
0: Right. So it's uh, you know that is just uh, how how can you ever know where you truly stand if there's not some sort of accounting? You would
1: have well, to what a yeah, and that's my point. So what I'm asking okay. is is was that the truth in lending where you said they have to give you an itemized bill? Is that for mortgages for residential, not for commercial? For residential, yes. Okay. Cause mine was commercial. So I'm assuming they were skirting the there. Obviously it was unethical and they were stealing and they're doing all these games, but the, and the government was supporting it, obviously, because they said, there's no law saying you have to, I had a major issue back in the day with my commercial real estate, but, um, very interesting to hear this. Okay. So what, what happens what that changed they fixed some of that but now they have other institutional things that causes people to default right were you able to solve their problems once you could identify the money situation
0: bingo sarah
1: you always ask
0: the right questions so what i began seeing and this is between say 1991 and 1995 um i kept seeing these manufactured defaults now at times I could intervene, show the mortgage servicing company proof of insurance or proof that real estate taxes were paid and that they should not have put that loan in default and work it out, get them to straighten out the accounting. Uh, But there came a time when that problem became so difficult to solve, especially with, um, I think it was Chase Manhattan Mortgage back in the day, Um, I would just see this problem happening over and over and over and over again until I realized, okay, they have created a new business model, a profitable new business model where foreclosure has become a new profit center. This is a problem designed not to be solved. I became so frustrated dealing with um, the um, employees at Chase that I stopped accepting loan service by Chase because I I mentally couldn't
1: tolerate the abuse. The abuse of the people that they were doing. Yeah. Now, did you know, yeah, it's very abusive. People are destroying their lives. Now, did they uh, go, because they couldn't do it in such mass that everybody would find out. They had to do it. They had a certain percentage that they could get away with.
0: Exactly right. Now, the other thing that I noticed back in that period of time, uh, so we're talking, you know, close to 30 years ago now, right? Uh, Is that the language in the standard Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac note that describes a default changed. It used to say if you do not make the monthly payment within 30 days of the due date, you will be in default. That changed to if you do not make the monthly payment on the day it is due, you are in default. That was when I had an epiphany uh, that if it were not for the state by state foreclosure laws that restrain foreclosures, technically, virtually everyone in the country would be in a state of default, and they could be foreclosed upon.
1: Because we would pay, let's say our bills due on the 5th, we would pay it maybe on the the 25th of the month before, and they would hold it long enough so that everything would would go through the next day or something. You you know what I'm saying? Because some people are pretty particular about making sure their bills never get there late. But I know that a lot of companies made a uh, habit out of holding it for ten days or something, so everything was a day late.
0: Yes, they used to do that, and uh, it's important to know that the mortgage servicing company gets to keep late charges. Okay, so that actually increases, and sometimes the late charge can be higher than the monthly servicing fee that they they get for servicing the mortgage loan. Mm-hmm. So there's a um, an adverse incentive often. Um, you know, for the servicer to manufacture these defaults where they can impose uh, late charges, other fees and costs, and bring the property to foreclosure where there's another kind of a lucrative opportunity for the servicer to to make money there. Um, You know, so that, like I say, I began really very carefully documenting the ramp up in the fraud Um, In in the early to mid 1990s, by the way, um, uh, back in 1991, I changed my DBA doing business as uh, from Marie McDonald real estate counselor to the mortgage counselor, because I could see if you look at the real estate transaction table where you have um, folks who are buying A property and financing it with a mortgage loan, they may have a real estate attorney there to represent them in the real estate transaction, but there's no one there, even the attorney who's closing the loan on behalf of the lender, who really truly understands the dynamics of how that mortgage loan is going to work. And so, In about uh, 1991, I kind of announced my new business by holding a free uh, public seminar at a local Sheraton Hotel here in Hyannis on Cape Cod. I had standing room only, and um, I began educating uh, the audience about various types of problems I had been detecting as I analyzed these mortgage loans. Following that seminar, several people came to me uh, to analyze loans that were issued by subsidiaries of the Dime Savings Bank of New York, mm-hmm. Dime at that time uh, imported a mortgage loan structure from that was popular in California uh, that had a negative amortization feature. Do you know what I mean by negative amortization? I do, but maybe the
1: audience, where you, yeah, explain that. Sure.
0: So um, negative amortization occurs when you make a monthly mortgage payment, and it may be the payment required by your promissory note. Let's just say it is. You make that monthly payment, but it's not enough to cover the interest that accrues during that month. So when you make the monthly payment, instead of your principal balance being reduced, it's increased, by the amount of interest that wasn't paid in that period. And so this can go on.
1: Yeah, but they, they use it when they don't have enough income coming in and they expect the real estate to go up in value. And I mean, that's the way they sell it. And so for a short period of time, they can pay less while they're... And like if you're in a recession or your business isn't doing well, it might be a good thing to do temporarily. It's never good long-term.
0: Right, but people uh did not understand that so the dime subsidiaries of the dime savings bank uh, originated these negative amortization loans but that feature was not clearly disclosed and there's no way that you could look at a truth and lending disclosure statement and know that the monthly payment you're required to make isn't going to cover the bill and so what dime did and this this became even more extreme by the way Uh, in the ramp up to the housing bubble as we come into the 2000s, the early 2000s, but dime would um, uh, uh, originate a mortgage loan. And let's just say the true interest rate was 10%. It would discount the initial interest rate to 7% um, for a period of time, but then it would begin adjusting up to market. Sure. Yep, and people people really thought that they they truly were getting this discounted rate, but but they weren't. That created what's called a payment rate, and negative amortization ensued. Well, in any event, my audit of those dime loans led to attorney general investigations here in Massachusetts, uh, then in New Hampshire, where I discovered that um, that negative amortization loan product violated. Uh, one of New Hampshire's uh, statutes that prohibited the charging of compound interest on residential mortgage loans. And then also um, my audits in Connecticut also led to the attorney general investigation there. Ultimately, by around 1996, uh, the three attorneys general uh, broke a deal with the Dime Savings Bank and um, settled the matter. And uh, But in the meantime, so much damage. Well, okay, wait a minute.
1: They settled the matter. Yeah. So settling the matter, all the victims are still hosed. Um, we're, we're not going to make it. But you pay a fee. It goes to the government for some, some other thing that we really want money for. And then everybody goes on the merry way and you supposedly won't do this anymore.
0: Right. So let me just tell you what I, I know about uh, that whole situation, because uh, I really um, poured in a lot of pro bono work over about a five year period of time to help people, to consult with um, investigative reporters uh, and and so forth and so on to to get to the root. I also consulted in a number of criminal defense cases. So I got a very good inside picture in terms of what was going on. So the Dime Savings Bank, uh, like many other savings and loans by the sort of mid to late 1980s was virtually insolvent it had a very low capital ratio, and it should have been uh, taken into receivership like so many other uh, failed banks at that time.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, but of course, you know there were. It, it was a Rockefeller bank, and uh, it used this negative amortization loan product to basically parlay its way back to financial solvency. And uh, after the all of the attorney general's investigations and so forth. Uh, it began merging with other companies and ultimately merged up into JP Morgan Chase and so it soon became the fifth largest thrift in the country. so it actually um, used these sort of paper profits uh, you know to sell securities and bring in investment that basically brought the bank back into, a financially stable situation. But as I say, then it, it did merge into uh, JP Morgan Chase. But in the meantime, what I, what I understood
1: by the well, time- wait a minute though. P- people, person after person were taken advantage of and yes. they foreclosed on their home because they no longer could pay for their, their monthly payment. Did they just keep the um, capital that these poor people put into their homes? And then I suppose there really wasn't, they just kept everything, didn't they? And then the person was out of everything they poured into it. And they didn't give them a good loan. They didn't give them a good rate at the beginning. Anyway. I mean, it wasn't like it was so phenomenal. They gave them a a reasonable market rate, but behind the scenes, it was a lot more.
0: Yeah. Well, by using the discounted teaser rate and not really clarifying how this was going to work, it, it, you know, it, they gained a competitive advantage against other financial institutions sure, who were sure. making conventional loans.
1: But they and, did that a uh, lot during the 2008 financial crisis. I mean, that was a huge, you know, like the they could people could just sign, uh, you know, what the, without, uh, what is it? No doc loans. I mean, they did all of that. I mean, it was like all the fraud came together in the financial crisis.
0: Yeah, I believe that what I was involved in there in the early to mid 1990s analyzing what the dime savings bank was doing was a test run for what we get saw it. later as we come across the threshold to the new millennium and um and then by that they time, were doing course, and
1: they do that a lot they test out stuff and then yeah. once they test it out they know it works and they implement it in mass
0: exactly so they were also testing how much they could get away with, with the regulators, with um, uh, attorneys general and other prosecutors and so forth. And, uh, you know, so, and then you remember, you know, and I think it was 1998 before uh, President Clinton left office, he um, uh, you know, reversed the Glass-Steagall Act so that so that now commercial banks and investment banks uh, could, you know, be held under one roof and get into one another's business. Okay. okay, and so this, with access to all that capital, now we see the lobbyists legislating Congress to put more people into home ownership, right? And so we see we see again the use of these sort of creative mortgage loan products. We see the subprime loan products that were structured, um, you know, with an initially discounted teaser rate for two to three years. And then it would go into its fully adjusting um, uh, market rate and payment. And I if I just look at a mortgage loan application and then analyze the promissory note. I can tell you exactly on what day that loan is going to implode. So it's no mystery
1: that. So they know too is the bottom line.
0: Oh, yes, absolutely.
1: So it's a planned thing. Okay, so how do you, let's tie it all back to, because you need to know history in order to see how they did this. But let's tie it back to now BlackRock buying up whole neighborhoods and what they're doing to people now. (laughs) Yeah, you know,
0: I was just doing a little um, research on that. I know about a year ago, there was a lot of publicity um, in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Atlantic, um, about BlackRock's acquisitions. And then some of the other articles that are written actually show proportionately, that's not really, you know, a a sizable piece of, of the rental market. But, you know, I haven't seen a lot of sourcing. In other words, where did these reporters source their information? So, for example, let me tell you what I know about what happened uh, following the 2008 financial crisis and the sort of cleanup uh, that we're still going through, by the way. So, Yeah, many of these loans originated between 2000 and 2007 when we have the mortgage meltdown followed in 2008 by the financial crisis were really designed to fail. Uh, You can, as I say, look at the structure of the loan, um, do an affordability analysis based upon um, the true income of the homeowners, and then just look at um, when that loan is going to implode. And, and I knew, I knew. In addition, mm-hmm. back in the day, I was uh, using the Bloomberg terminal to look at what was happening to um, residential mortgage backed securities. And so, for example, Countrywide or Washington Mutual Bank, Intimac Bank, and others securitized all of these loans and um uh and you would see series after series of these um securitization deals begin to have default rates of 20 30 40 percent or more and yet they kept originating and securitizing these deals it's just like i if someone had interviewed me, you know, before the the big lie, you know, I would yeah. have been the one to be able to blow the whistle. And 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 it, this is like, all you have to do is look at these Bloomberg screenshots, you know, deal by deal, and 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 see what's happening.
1: So they but- knew, okay, is what you're trying to say that they knew. Now that did, did they also know or have a good idea that the government was going to bail them out and they would get billions from the government? they would get paid on all ends. They'd get paid from this the financial racket that they did, and then they get paid by the government as well. So it was just a win-win all around for them. And, and then, were they part of taking down the United States and the infrastructure of this country?
0: Well, I mean, uh, the housing market is is a very large part of the US economy and it drives many other markets. Um, so, Trying to get back to the subject of you know what happens, yes, after the 2008 financial crisis, the bailout of the big banks, the kind of re-regulation um, uh, of the mortgage banking industry to to remove a lot of the the risk that they they had uh, um, you know taken on um, in the earlier part of the uh, you know the first uh, decade or so what be what be, and of course there was a tsunami of foreclosures that followed yeah, yeah the the 2008 financial crisis and Sarah I am still dealing with those legacy loans most of the people who are contacting me to assist them with foreclosure and eviction or other mortgage disputes we're still talking about loans that were originated during that period of time so what that tells me is that the the sheer volume of defaulted mortgage loans and foreclosures has been restrained for about 13 years now uh mm. we're still not through that pipeline now if if, if that had if they had tried to bring all those foreclosures uh shortly after those loans defaulted, Congress would have enacted legislation to restrain that because it's just too massive. In any event, of course, a lot of those loans were sold to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And what we've seen happen uh, since the financial crisis is that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac's regulator now receiver the Federal Housing Finance Agency has required them to um, to uh, divest their um, their portfolios of whole loans that they're carrying on their books. So they securitize everything, and when the loans, but they're still the guarantor, right, for, for those those loans um, that have been securitized and and uh, backed by investors, Um, but what they've been doing uh, since about 2009 and on is they have been auctioning off their non-performing loans. Now, this is where we get into how much does BlackRock and Vanguard really own in terms of interests in U.S. real estate, So, so you have these hedge funds coming in to purchase these portfolios of non-performing loans. And of course they're buying these at uh, very deeply discounted prices, who knows, pennies on the dollar in some cases. And um, and so these head fund funds will uh, repackage these loans and issue now securities based upon uh, those assets, and they will begin uh, taking over the collection process of prosecuting foreclosures uh, or uh, bringing eviction actions. And um, so they have, in money laundering, we'd call that, they have layered, you might say, the the ill-gotten gains. By the way, a lot of these um, Jeff, uh, you just
1: said in money in money laundering. So, is this an easier way to do money laundering? They can launder more money through this process.
0: Uh, I, I believe what you're saying. I believe that that there is a big component of money laundering. Now, I was going to say that when these um, portfolios of non-performing loans are sold, what does the debt buyer get? usually not the original promissory note and collateral file. They just get a PDF file, uh, which constitutes the old servicing file. So a copy, a PDF copy of the original note, the mortgage, maybe a portion of the transaction history. But when I do the deep dive, and it's kind of like, Uh, it might be easier for you to think of credit card debt. What does a debt buyer of credit card debt actually get? Not much. And the contracts between the seller of the non-performing loans and the buyer of the non-performing loans um, discloses, look, you're buying this um, in an as is, situation and this is all we're delivering to you. So really there are a lot of um, collection practices that probably violate the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act and other state and federal laws because they don't actually, if, if you don't have in a mortgage transaction you don't actually have the original note in your possession you are not the person entitled to enforce that note and so you use scare tactics essentially
1: it's harassment yeah, you
0: you you know you you say we're going to foreclose and a lot of times they can complete that foreclosure people do not know how properly to raise their defenses very very difficult to find a foreclosure defense attorney still standing who has put him or herself through the learning curve and knows how to properly raise the consumer's claims. So it's a business decision, Sarah. They've been getting away with this now for decades upon decades.
1: And so they're going after low hanging fruit of people they can take advantage of is what they're doing. And they've been doing it for years. How does that, I'm gonna keep going back to BlackRock. How does that, tie into all these people buying or all these investment companies buying neighborhoods and buying homes. How does that is I, I don't how does that buy into this whole scam with mortgages? Well, of course when you're talking
0: about um, buying neighborhoods, how how are they going to do that? Are they are they going to do what Walt Disney did back in the day and assemble parcels of land so that they have contiguous real estate that they can control and develop, et cetera, et cetera? Probably not. Um, not, I'd I'd love to uh, work with an investigative reporter to, to dig in a little bit deeper and see how they're actually doing it because what they might be doing is buying a portfolio of loans. All right, going back to the late 1980s, I had a wonderful, a real estate mentor who taught me real estate exchanging. Uh, And um, I'll never forget, he told me that you do not have to own real estate to control it. And ideally, you will want to put yourself in the lucrative sandwich position in between um, who owns the property And, you know, uh, who's, you know, who, 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 who the lender, who the lender is.
1: And so it's like, who prints the money owns can make controls countries who owns the, it's that whole federal reserve idea or the Rothschild's idea that, um, the printing, the money, having control of the money, you have control of everything essentially. And so that's what they're doing is putting themselves in between that. Is this BlackRock's attempt to eventually, I mean, I I don't know, to transfer, or is it just a place for them to place their assets because they don't trust the the stock market?
0: Well, that that may be part of it because, of course, you know, um, they're a money manager, investment um, firm. But what I was going to say, you know, about this lucrative sandwich position, if you can think what an option is.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: either in securities or on real estate. So you, you can actually, um, you can control a property by optioning, uh, working on an option agreement with the seller of the property to buy it by a certain date for a certain price. And you know in the meantime, uh, you can lease that property out to someone else and make money in between. But in any event, um, so these institutions.
1: Oh, so wait a minute. Is that how they would do the money laundering then?
0: Well, it depends. Money laundering will involve uh, taking illicit profits. If you, um, if if you have, because well, a... you could
1: lease out. You were saying they could lease out while somebody's still buying it. Could they act like they were doing a lease as well?
0: Yes, you you can. Depending upon what rights you bargained for in the option agreement
1: okay okay it's complicated isn't it this whole area ex- they've made really complicated for an average person
0: it's, it's, ex- it's extremely complicated by design it
1: doesn't need to be this is like a simple thing it really is but they've made it complicated so when you say it's a 50 to 100 year planning process that they're putting in place what do you mean by that how would you encapsulate well, that go ahead
0: i think i i have always intuitively thought this is a land grab